Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. I am Joel. I am one of the pastors here at Res City, and I am excited to be with you this morning, worshiping God, um, uh, coming together as His people, um, and gathering to study His Word, which is what we're going to do here in just a second. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll hop into our message this morning. Lord, thank you for today. Whatever we're coming in with today, Lord, I know people are, are maybe coming in with joys, maybe they're coming in with burdens or anxieties, Lord. Whatever it is that we're coming in with, I pray that you would meet us here today, God. Um, help us to, uh, to know you, to, to feel that you are with us, God, through your spirit, um, and to leave in a place uh, that is resting in that, Lord, uh, when, we, when we do leave this place this morning. Um, as we study your word this morning, I pray that you'd be with us. I pray that your spirit would speak to us, God, as we um, consider what, uh, what the parable today has to say to us, Lord, and that you would just be with us through it all. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> no matter who you are, though, finding $20 on the ground would fill you with a lot of joy, just unimaginable excitement and joy and delight as a kid. And I think, you know, honestly, there may be very few things in life that give us that kind of joy, like, we, you know, like a kid finding $20 on the ground anymore, right? We live in a pretty cynical time, like where we're skeptical of a lot of things. Um, and, and, you know, maybe that's for good reason. Like, a lot of us have feel, felt burnt by things in the past, so when we th- find something that we think maybe this would give us some joy, we're skeptical of it. We, we don't let ourselves have joy over it, even if normally it would be something that would give us that joy. And I get it. Like, the world is, there's, there's not always a lot of stuff to have joy about in the world, right? As a church, we haven't really talked much about what's going on over in, in Israel and Gaza right now, but, I mean, that's a reminder of how there's a lot to lament in the world. There's not always a lot of things to find joy in in the world. And so maybe we find ourselves thinking joy is not like a normal experience that we have, and honestly, I think because that we live lives without a lot of joy. Well, Jesus' parable today, I think, invites us to consider the importance of joy and how essential it is to his kingdom and discipleship within it that we are seeking joy and, and experiencing joy and realizing there is a lot of joy for us to be had. And so today we're going to talk about joy in the kingdom we're in a series on parables. We're going through some of, not all, we're not, we're not getting to all the parables of Jesus, but we're calling it Stories of the Kingdom, or sorry, sorry, Stories of Jesus Understanding the Kingdom, which is us uh, going through these parables. These are stories that Jesus would tell to help people make sense of his kingdom. It was a sort of primary communication tool to teach and to challenge and to inspire people. And we're opening ourselves up to be inspired, taught, and challenged as well. Now, what I want to do is what we tried to do a few weeks ago with the question response, where uh, we were hoping to kind of have a large chunk of the sermon be a bit of choose-your-own sermon, where you know, we kind of talk about the parable, but let there be some more interaction. And we had some technical difficulties with that. I apologize. So we're going to try that again today. We're going to see if it works this time. Um, please go to redcitychurch.org um, on your phones, or if you have a laptop with you and you want to pull that out in the middle of the sermon, go ahead and you can do that too. Um, and you can go to uh, the, the front page there and you can submit a question. And we'll, we'll try to get to a bunch of them today. Well, we'll see how much time we have, but it's our goal to have that be a large chunk of the, of the sermon again. All right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the parable. I'm going to explain it. I'm going to give a little bit of reflection. And then I'm going to give it over to all of you with your questions. 
All right, let's get into it. Today we are in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough joy, or sorry, to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and he bought it. So let's, let's talk through these a little bit. Let's just make sure we're understanding what's going on here. In the first parable, the man is stumbling onto literal buried treasure. This is Goonies style thing right here, okay? In, and in order to have a legal claim on the field, he has to sell all as he owns in order to get enough money to fund the purchase of the field. He's not going to dig it up and steal it. He's going to go about it kind of the right way and buy the field to make sure he can, he can legally say this is his treasure. And the reason he's willing to sell everything he has in order to do that is because the treasure is so much more valuable than anything that he was selling in order to buy the field. Now, maybe this seems like a weird story to you, um, but it's actually been pretty common in history to bury your treasure. Um, it's only been fairly recently that um, all of our money was just a bunch of ones and zeros that a bank was keeping track of. In, in the past, you had to hold on to a lot of that stuff on your own and make sure it wasn't stolen. People trying to steal your money right now on, uh, on your, in your bank, people were trying to steal your money in the ancient world too. And so um, it wasn't just pirates that would bury their treasure. It was a safe and common thing in history. And it was definitely common actually in ancient, in ancient Israel. So for example, there's a Jewish historian that tells us that during a war with Rome, Many, many wealthy people buried their treasure throughout just to keep it safe. And the Romans tried to find a bunch of it. It was a huge effort by the Roman army to try to find that money. And there's actually a scroll that was once discovered in Israel that is made of copper, and it's actually engraved with a long list of buried treasure, kind of saying where you can find whoever you know, this, this treasure belonged to. He actually tells you where you can find it in places like uh, cisterns or hidden under some stones, buried in fields, and even, very sneakily, buried in some burial mounds, which maybe isn't a very nice thing to do, I guess, but it was a good spot to hide some money. And so I would guess some of the people hearing this parable originally probably themselves had buried some of their uh, treasure for their own safety. Now, if you think it's immoral or unethical to buy the field when the owner doesn't know, you don't need to worry. Actually, interestingly, um, without getting into it too much, there was some rabbinic regulations. That was interpretation of the Jewish law that said this was fine. And Roman law apparently wasn't settled on it. So there's nothing shady about this story that Jesus is telling. This would have been totally ethical. Now, in the second parable, we're talking about a merchant who is looking to buy things in one place and then resell them in another. And so he comes to some market, and he finds the, 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 the discovery of a career. And he does all he can to come into ownership of it, which means, once again, sort of selling maybe all the other pearls, these much smaller ones that he has already so he can get it. It was that worth it. Now, the reason Jesus picks a, parable, or a pearl here in this parable is because they were typically thought to be the most valuable objects in existence at that time. So it became a sort of figure of speech for something of supreme worth. And so the merchant has literally found something nothing else can match in value, in other words, and he's going to do everything he can to come into possession of it. Now, taken together, these two stories reinforce a main point. It's pretty simple. The idea is that the kingdom is so valuable that if you have uh, to give up everything to get it, you would still be making dollars on the penny, to turn that phrase sort of the opposite way. And both people in the parable, they recognize the worth of what they found to be of so high that they would be stupid not 
to make that trade in order to get the thing. And the point is uh, uh, that the kingdom has a radical nature to it that you don't really get it if you sneak a piece of the treasure out of the field and leave the rest for someone else to find. Or if, you, if it's one pearl on a set of a necklace with a bunch of other pearls, okay? That's not really how the kingdom works. You have to be all in. And we talked about that a little bit more a few weeks ago, that idea. So I, we're not going to get into it today here as much. What I want to do is I want to focus on the underlying uh, reason f- behind all of this, right? Because if we look deeper at the parable, the parable is not just describing the action taken, but also, at least in the first case, the emotion that's experienced by the person finding that treasure in order to get them to take the action to sell all that they have in order to come in possession of this field or this pearl. And the underlying emotion is not, say, in his anxiety, <laughs> he sells everything he owns. In his begrudgingness, he trades everything he has to buy the field. Okay? He's not, he doesn't seem to be thinking about the regret that he might have for getting rid of some, this other stuff that he has in order to sell. And it's not anger of any kind either. It's that he's overcome by excitement or joy. Okay? In his joy, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. In his joy. This gets translated a few different ways throughout different te- uh, translations of this, of this uh, verse. We're talking excitement, delight, ecstasy. Okay? Joy is the type of emotion that can move us to go all in, to take the plunge, to overcome any anxiety we might have of getting rid of other things in order to come into possession of this thing of greater value. It's a kind of pure and spontaneous delight, maybe sometimes relief, a burden lifted that comes out of the very deepest parts of us. It's not something we can manufacture, Right? We can't buy it. We can't order it on Amazon. No matter what commercials tell you, joy is not something that you can, that's a few clicks away on a website. Right? We don't have control over it. And when we don't have joy, it's very difficult to go all in on things. Right? It's hard to put all of us into something when we don't have a deep feeling within us that this is the right thing to do. This is, this is a delightful thing that I'm doing. It's really hard for us to do that, and it's actually a lot more, I think, likely that we would be overcome with anxiety in a situation like that. Now, Jesus knew this. Jesus was very aware of this, and I think we sometimes tend to think of Jesus as someone who is angry a lot, right? He's angry at sin. He's angry at injustice. He's angry about religious leaders, right? And he wants us to be angry about those things, too. And it's true, Jesus does showcase his anger, right? It's true, and we should also be against the things that Jesus is angry with. But one of the things that I think you find when you read through the Gospels is that joy or celebration is a a more common theme of the kingdom than any other emotion. And this is so much the case that uh, an author named Klein Snodgrass It's a book on parables that we've used for a lot of this sermon. When I was reading this a few years ago, I was really, really struck by a line that he had in there. And it's one that stayed with me ever since then. And, And the line is this, where joy is absent, the kingdom is absent. Where joy is absent, the kingdom is absent. And we see this in a lot of other parables too, right? For example, one we're not going to do in this series about a lost sheep and a lost coin, where someone finds it and they throw a huge party to celebrate. And we might think, it seems a little over the top that you dropped 
a quarter in your house is more valuable than a quarter, but when we think of coins, that's what we think of. It fell behind your dresser, and you find it, and you invite the whole neighborhood in to have a big party. We might think, that's a little bit over the top, but I think Jesus would tell us, you might not be understanding the nature of the kingdom if that is not your response to finding this thing that has been lost. And Jesus even seems to have had a bad reputation for excessive joy and celebration. So, for example, in Luke 7.34, Jesus says, I came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Apparently, he has this sort of reputation where people saw him as being a bit of a party animal and doing it with the wrong crowd. Now, I don't think Jesus did this because he liked to have a good time. Like, that was just why he came to earth. I came to earth to party. Why don't you join me, right? And he wasn't doing it to just kind of stick it to the religious and cultural authorities of his day because they were just really stodgy and they needed to loosen up, right? It wasn't, and it wasn't some skin-deep toxic positivity either. It was him telling the truth to himself and others about what was going on in the world, Because the kingdom coming represented a change in affairs for the whole world, a change in eras for humanity, a change in the outlook on the future, a change in people's relation to God. And it was something that would stay true no matter what kind of ups and downs we might go through after we receive it. Joy in all of its forms is the only right response to what was taking place. And so where joy is absent, the kingdom is absent. That's one of the things that Jesus wants to challenge us. Now let that sink in, okay? Let that sink in. Really think about that. Would you say that one of your main characteristics in your relationship to the kingdom, to discipleship, to church, to spiritual disciplines, to honoring God, is joy? Like how much do you even think it should be on the list of things that characterize you as a disciple of Jesus? Is it even on the list of things that you think this should, this should mark me out as a follower of Jesus? I know, I'll speak for myself, okay? When I started to really consider this, I realized that I was pretty convicted because I've, you know, I'm like y'all, a lot of you, okay? I wrestle with hopelessness, cynicism, anxiousness, right? In related to the stuff that I do, even in ministry, Right? I still wrestle with that stuff. And I was realizing how much those things were stifling joy and how it, you know, a lot of the, the, the way I was going about the ministry work that I was doing was not characterized by a lot of joy. I didn't feel a lot of joy. I wasn't telling myself that it's important for me to, to seek out joy living in the kingdom of God. And I was really challenged by that. I think without realizing it, so much of my expectation of joy is that would come when a good thing would happen to me, some external trigger, right? Hoping, you know, that some deep desire I had would get met and then I can have joy. And so I found myself always waiting for that to happen. Even when good stuff would happen, I would still find myself thinking about, well, having a scarcity mentality of like, well, this, this is a good thing, which means a bad thing is about to come probably, right? You know how you fall into those traps a lot of times, and it makes having joy really impossible. And I'm still figuring this out, okay? We always are, right? So I'm not saying I've figured out the secret to joy. This is not a sermon where I give you five steps to always have a smile on your face and never have any challenges and always be full of joy, all right? I'm not going to give you that sermon because I don't think that sermon really exists. But I am going to talk to you about where I think, where I'm convinced we have to start 
if we're going to be people who have this characteristic about us, people who are kingdom people and are marked by joy. And I think it really starts here. True connection with the God of joy. Okay? It's not tied to circumstances. Like, you know, lately I have a lot of good reasons to feel confident about the direction of Res City, or I had the week that I wanted, or, you know, were things between me and Julie good this week, or, you know, was I happy with myself? Did I have confidence or self-esteem in myself in some way? Did I get enough sleep? Did the Vikings win? The answer is always no to that one. It's a bad one to base your joy on, right? These are not the right questions to be asking. The joy that Jesus is talking about is found when the deepest part of us is touched by God. And you would see this throughout his ministry. You see this throughout Jesus' ministry that that's where the joy was coming from for people. Okay? So it's actually a story, I think, that is, is interestingly, it's almost the story of a man who lives the parable that we're talking about today. Okay? It comes from Luke 19, uh, 1 to 10. And it's, it's about a guy named Zacchaeus. Maybe you guys are familiar with that. If you grew up in church, there's an annoying song that's related, you know, associated with him. Um, and he is a guy who runs a tax collection agency. His job is to kind of oversee collection of the required tax to Rome. Now, in order to have that position, you had to be quite wealthy in order to do that. Um, and it would also make him a man of high status within Rome. Right? So you'd expect a guy who's wealthy and has really high status among the people who really matter would be full of a lot of joy. But also, as you read through it and you really think between the lines, you see that this is probably someone who had a big hole deep in his heart. Kind of a longing to be known as more than just a cheater and a villain, a real anti-hero in the world. Just being called a tax collector was derogatory. It was a slur that you would use to describe someone in the world, in the ancient world, right? And they were often categorized with robbers. That's how badly people thought of them. And not, not without warrant. A lot of times it was very deserved, right? Regularly, these tax collectors would skim off the top for a lot more than they had to collect for Rome, and they would use it to inflate their own wealth, right? And whether or not Zacchaeus did this or not, the story doesn't really tell us. This is how he would have been known, Right? This is a man who had been longing to be known by something else. To someone whose heart was dried out from years of being the villain, of overthinking every look that he got as he walked through the street on a daily basis. Someone who's probably totally joyless. And Jesus is coming through his town one day. And Zacchaeus wants so badly to get a glimpse of him that he climbs a tree right? Probably expecting not to be noticed. He's just trying to get a look at this guy from afar. That seems to be his only real plan. And in the middle of it, Jesus picks him out of the crowd, and he says, hey, I want to spend the night at your house tonight. He's saying, I want to, you of all the people here, I want to spend time with you. I want to get to know you. I want to talk about you. I want to uh, tell you about myself and this kingdom that I'm bringing. It's the least likely person that you would have expected Jesus to pick out of that crowd. Someone who was regularly branded a sinner. Like the word sinner was usually reserved for people like tax collectors. And Zacchaeus, quite immediately, he declares that he's going to give up half of his wealth to causes for the poor. And he's going to go back and see if he cheated anybody and he was going to pay them back four times what he cheated them. And so even though the word joy is not actually used in the passage, it's just like in the parable, 
right? You wouldn't do something like this without an immense burst of joy deep within you to overcome the fear of potentially parting with a lot of your wealth. Like, that's not something someone just does for fun. They don't do it out of anxiety or fear. They do it out of joy, out of a deep sense of joy. And where did that joy come from? I think it was being seen and known and loved by God through Jesus, feeling touched in his heart, despite everyone else seeing him as a villain. When Jesus picked him out of the crowd, I think Zacchaeus was feeling true love. And that was the treasure that made him willing to give up everything he owned, or at least a lot of it. That is what the kingdom was, that God had come to bring his presence in heaven itself on earth to invite Zacchaeus into that. Here's a man who had discovered a treasure greater than all the wealth he already had, a pearl, and gave up maybe not all he had, but quite a bit of it in order to get it. And when we read stories like that, it's easy to understand where the joy of the kingdom was coming from in Jesus' ministry. Now, I think there's lots of Zacchaeuses out there. There's a lot of Zacchaeuses in this room right now. I think I'm a Zacchaeus a lot of times. I'm short, too, so it fits, you know, fits that even more. But there's like a deep feeling in our psyche of unknownness, being acutely aware of our weakness and our limitation, thinking about what people must think of us, feeling misunderstood. There's a real lack of, of substance, maybe, and loneliness in all that we do. And depression and anxiety, these are real things that a lot of people struggle with, right? And seeing professionals and taking medication can really help. But at the end of the day, those things can't give you a why for your joy. We need to know why do we have joy. Why would I have joy? And in the kingdom, it's because we have been touched and known in our hearts by the love of God, like the people in these stories that we read throughout Jesus' ministry, like the people in these parables that we're talking about. And so I'm proposing that the way that we nurture joy in a regular, ongoing way is through regular abiding connection with the one who gives us joy. To sort of constantly be having these Zacchaeus moments where we're coming into contact with Jesus. We're letting him touch our hearts. We're, 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 We're having this sort of connection with him where we are being met at our deepest longings and desires by the one who tells us, I care about your longings and your desires. I know what they are. I love you despite them. I give you a new identity maybe than the one that everyone else gives you. Whatever it is, coming into those types of moments is like coming into possession of a pearl of untold amounts of value. And when we can grow in the art of going back to that well again and again, we can be people who are characterized by the joy of the kingdom and perhaps lead other people to find it too. All right. Why don't we move into some question and response? Do we, is it working today? Do we have some questions coming in? Okay, good. Um, the first one is, what if we're in a season of life where it's challenging to be joyful? Yeah. Um, and I don't know, maybe we'll just combine this uh, with the second one is, what does joy look like when we're not happy? Yeah. So this is a really good um, question, and I, I figured I would get it, right? Um, lament is something you read about often in Scripture. And we've talked about this at Res City, too. I think that sometimes we can feel like joy and lament are like two things that are, are opposite of each other in some way, right? Or they're opposed to each other. But that, I don't think, is true. 
I don't think that those two things are supposed to be put in opposition to one another. Um, scripture has whole books dedicated to lament. And Jesus is someone who wept and lamented too. Despite the fact that he is challenging us to have joy and saying it is a mark of his kingdom, he's someone that wept and lamented often as well. And I may ask, like, what's the balance between that? What's the tension between those things? And I think, I think it really comes down to this. There are seasons for lament where we have to do it when we're in it. We have to recognize that we're in a season of lament when it comes upon us. Okay, we have to tell the truth to ourselves when we're in a season of lament and not pretend we're not in that season. We have to be fully in it when it comes. And that is a good thing for us to do. But I think there's a difference between that version of healthy lament and then just kind of being generally pessimistic or um, kind of being drawn like a magnet to despair, which I think can happen to us a lot of times when we fall into a season of lament, where we start to think there's no way that the future could ever change. Like, I'm going to be stuck in this place forever. Everything is always going to suck. And I think that really joy and lament are supposed to work together in a way that's different than that. So actually, I have this, I have this written down here because I think it's a, it's a good example of this. Um, in John 16, um, Jesus is talking about sort of the challenge of the, he calls them the birth pains. And it's this, he's talking about the kingdom coming into the world. It's like an apocalyptic language for, that he uses often. And we've seen other places in scripture too to describe sort of the, the, the changing from one era to another. It's called the birth pains. And he's clear, this is a tough thing. This is a challenging thing. It's tough like childbirth is tough, right? Um, I will never do childbirth. I hear it's often described by a lot of people who, who have done it that it's the most painful thing they've ever experienced. I'll just take your word for it, okay? And assume it's probably really painful, okay? And um, in John 16, 21, Jesus says, it will be like a woman suffering the pains of labor, when her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby into the world. Okay? So there is a time and a part of the birth process for a mother where she's saying, she's lamenting, she's saying, holy crap, this really hurts. Okay? She's being honest with herself and everyone else around her. This is really hard. Lament is giving voice to that feeling. But you don't ever see mothers who have given birth complaining about that afterwards, right? That's Jesus' point. When they look at that child, you know, they don't see... The, the, they don't, don't see the pain of that season in their child all the time. They are joyful. They're joyful in what has come into existence through the lament, in other words, if that makes sense, right? And, and I think uh, they, they, Jesus' point is saying that God is a God who births new things out of seasons of lament. I think that's actually the point that he's trying to make here. He, he takes horrible, ugly, awful things, and he calls us to name those things as awful and hard, and difficult, and challenging, and painful, but then to believe that joy can come out of it. And when we enter into that, to expect joy to happen as, as a part of it. And I think that's really a principle of the cross, right? That's what happens with Jesus on the cross. Going through that lament of, of dying on the cross, but then the joy of resurrection coming out of it. And so I think um, if you're in a season where it feels like lament is just where you're at, be in that season, Okay? And it's not going to be automatic. It's not going to be a flip getting switch probably when you're able to find the joy again. But seek it out. Believe it's possible. Believe that God is a God who works things to be joyful about in his kingdom out of our, our lament. And I think have that hope. So I hope that answers that question. Is that, is that it? Okay. Oh, all right. Well, 
Awesome. Well, let's, let's uh, pray, and then let's enter into a time of worship and communion. Um, communion is a, is a chance, maybe if you think about it like this, is a, is a chance for us to remember the lament of the cross, but we partake in it in a, in a joyful understanding of the hope and life that has come out of uh, Jesus' uh, lament and, and, and trial for us. It's what gives the kingdom its joyful power is Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection in that. So consider that as you, as you come up and take uh, communion this morning and also as we spend some time in worship. Um, maybe give your laments to God and ask you know, where you can be finding joy in the midst of your lament or, or, or if you are feeling in a season of joy right now where joy is coming easy, thank God for that. Um, give that up to God in praise and thanks. Lord, we thank you that um, you came to, to give us joy, Lord. Not, not to tell us to not lament, not to tell us that there aren't seasons that are challenging and that we go through them, um, but to give us the, the, the delight of the joy of your kingdom coming, to birth something new into earth here um, and to invite us into it, God. I pray that you would help us to uh, be people who are characterized and marked by joy as we are people who live in your kingdom. As tough as it can be in a world that is often uh, very, makes it very difficult to, to find joy, Lord, I pray that you would help us to discover the secret to finding joy as we are people who uh, are, are, are coming into contact with you, who are being touched in our hearts deeply by you, just like the, the people that we read about in Scripture. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.